Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And uh, today we have something that's been requested by listeners before. Yes. Uh, and it seems appropriate. We are approaching Valentine's Day. Talk about this particular <laughs> subject. Uh, that is Giacomo Casanova. So, born in 1725, Giovanni Giacomo Casanova led this life that was just so overwhelmingly full of sex and adventure that today we just we call particularly charismatic and successful lovers by his name. Like he's synonymous now. Yeah, with that. But his life was not just about sex. He was very smart and very witty. He spoke Italian, French, Latin, and Greek fluently. And he also knew some English, German, and Russian. He traveled and wrote extensively, and he had a hand in all kinds of aristocratic intrigue and also some crime. He wrote this 12-volume, 3,000-page autobiography that covers almost all of his life. So in this episode, we're not going to walk step by step through it. His life was very long and very, very rambly. And so that would be a very long, rambly, multi-part podcast. Instead, we're going to kind of look at what made him the man that he was, if not so much the man that he's remembered as. And just so we are absolutely, totally clear, about a third of Casanova's 3,000-page autobiography is about sex. So is about a third of this episode. So if you have tender young ears nearby, or if you yourself might object to this. <laughs> this is not the episode for you. A third of this episode uh, may be a little blue. We are going to not be explicit, but it is there. Right. We are going to start, though, with his childhood, because it it pretty much sets the template for what happened later. So just to start off, the name Casanova actually uh, sort of screams of wealth and extravagance. But he came from rather poor beginnings. Uh, he was born on April 2nd of 1725 into a family of theater people. So the theater in Venice at this point was enormously popular. But this did not translate into his parents being at all stable in any kind of financial or personal sense. Acting meant that they were always one step away from financial ruin. And on top of that, female actors were thought of basically as prostitutes or courtesans. And not so much because being on stage was immodest, but actresses had this reputation for bestowing sexual favors on their patrons, uh, as well as on theater managers and other men in positions of wealth and power. So the whole profession for ladies had really taken on kind of a Uh, Ill repute. Yeah. So Casanova's mother was an actress named Zanetta Ferrucci, and his paternity is pretty hazy. Her husband was Gaetano Casanova, and she had a string of extremely high-profile lovers. Some of them were royalty. So all of her children had her husband's last name, but it's possible that he didn't actually father any of them. Casanova's grandmother looked after him and all of his siblings while his parents were away acting. What's interesting for someone who ends up speaking many languages is that Casanova didn't talk much before the age of eight. Uh, And he had frequent nosebleeds. He was generally, as a child, in poor health. And his family thought he might have some kind of mental impairment. 
He apparently improved after seeing a folk healer. Uh, he called her a witch uh, when he was a young child. And this sparked an interest in the occult and in magic. When his mother's husband died of a brain tumor, a trio of brothers, one of whom may have really been Casanova's biological father, became guardians for him and his siblings. And they sent Casanova to a boarding school in Padua for the sake of health, of his health, because the air was cleaner there. And although he was nine years old, he couldn't really write very well when he got to school. So he was put into a class with younger students. But as he caught up with his peers, he started to really excel in reading and philosophy, and he developed a knack for language and wit. And he taught himself Greek from his tutor's books, which if you've ever tried to teach yourself a foreign language just from books, you will realize that that's quite an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was very smart, and his gift for language and writing would stick with him for his entire life. He also met his first love there. It was his tutor's sister. Um, she later survived smallpox, and they wound up being friends for the rest of their lives. He was at her side when she died in 1776. So sweet. Uh, at the age of 12, he entered a university to study law, and he graduated at 16. Just let those numbers settle for a moment. He also continued to have an interest in folk medicine, so he took courses in science and medicine as well while he was studying law. In 1740, a year before he graduated with his law degree, he also took minor holy orders. His family wanted him to become a priest, and this this did not make him a priest, but it was one of the first steps that a man would go through to get onto that path. And this is where Casanova's M.O. sort of emerges for the rest of his life. So he started working with a parish priest named Father Tosello. And thanks to Father Tosello's connections and Casanova's charisma, Casanova became a regular guest at the home of a senator named Malapiero. So as Casanova spent more and more time under Malapiero's influence, he started to dress and act in this increasingly worldly and flirtatious way which the people around him started to frown upon. He also became infatuated with Father Tosello's niece, Angela. And Angela was interested in Casanova, but only if he left the church to marry her. Casanova, on the other hand, as you may suspect from his reputation, had no intention of marrying. He spent months trying to woo Angela while while two of her kin, Nanette and Marta, chaperoned. So... He never swayed Angela from her convictions of only being with him if he would marry her. But what wound up happening instead was that he lost his virginity in an encounter with both Nanette and Marta. And he described this uh, event as being orchestrated as much by them as from as by himself. So the chaperones ended up yeah. in, a, in a, a dalliance with him. Yes. And the three of them continued to have encounters for a number of years, and he called the pair his little wives. Nanette eventually married someone else, and Marta eventually joined a convent, saying her soul would be saved because she spent the rest of her life repenting for their trysts. So that's how his love life often went, which is what we're going to talk about in the the next little chunk of this podcast. Some of his... uh, his relationships seem quite scandalous, even by today's standards. In his own writing, though, he describes himself as being motivated genuinely by love and by bringing joy and pleasure to other people. He wrote, Alas for anyone who thinks the pleasure of Venus is worth anything, unless it comes from two hearts which love each other and are in perfect concord. 
So his aim was to make a woman feel so loved and adored that she came to him. His physical encounters were as much about his partner's pleasures as his own. And as he got older and had more funds of his own, he always tried to leave women in a better state once their relationship had ended, either leaving them with money or finding a wealthy man for a woman to marry. So not really like your standard 18th century pickup artist that we've come to view him as in many ways, like that he was just seducing and discarding women and moving on. He was trying to better their lives. Yeah, I it's a fascinating concept. Yeah, well, and, you know, when we think about today, there's a lot of, of discussion about, like, the sexualization of society. And people, a lot of times, will look into past eras and talk about how much more sexually conservative people were. And this is not necessarily true of the particular era being discussed. Yeah. But Casanova was definitely not, like, ruining virgins and making them unmarriageable like I think that's an idea that people associate with him and while there were virgins that he had uh, experiences with he he did not like wreck people and then leave them destitute in a gutter yeah he he attempted to make their lives better and to make them happy while they were together for the most part there was also a lot of food in this a whole lot of food Uh, very very often (laughs) Uh, in his in his descriptions of the things w- that went down uh, in the bedroom, there was also the discussion of the meal they had beforehand and all the delicious, rich, sumptuous, aphrodisiac kind of foods that they had before. The food and the sex go together in Casanova's world. Instead of food and naps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so some of his... Other most infamous relationships uh, include a castrato known as Bellino, who turned out to be a woman named Teresa. And he was quite conflicted about being in love with a man. But then when it turned out that she was a woman, he thought about leaving the church to marry her. They ultimately did not marry, although they did have a child together. There's also the extremely infamous affair with two women known as CC and M.N., So he first started being involved with Cece, and her father did not like this at all. He sent Cece away to a convent to get her away from Casanova. But by the time she got there, she was already pregnant. A nun named M.M. looked after Cece after she miscarried this child. According to his autobiography, Cece and M.M. developed a relationship with each other, and then Casanova had a relationship with both of them. This is... One of the encounters that is quite famous today, but there's some discussion about whether it really happened. It has a whole lot of uh, style in common with sort of nun pornography that existed at the time. And while there are theories about the identity of CC, MM has never been conclusively identified. He also pursued his illegitimate daughter and became engaged to her, not knowing, it is important to note, that it was his daughter. After he discovered the truth, he claims to have gone on to have had an affair with both the daughter and the mother uh, who he fathered the child with. And there is some historical discussion, again, about whether this part actually happened. And then there was Henriette who is often thought of as the love of his life. Uh, When you see movies about Casanova and there's the story of, and the one woman who would tame his heart. (laughs) 
<laughs> Usually that is intended to be Henriette. And she was witty, charismatic, and adventurous. She really seemed like his perfect match. He described his time with her as the happiest time of his life. But she ended their relationship after a few months, and that did not happen that often. Casanova was not often the person who got left. Uh, he was really heartbroken. She's the person who scratched a message into the, their bedroom window that said, Tu oblirai aussi Henriette, or you will also forget Henriette. Unsurprisingly, Casanova fathered a lot of children, and he contracted some STDs, uh, including both gonorrhea and syphilis. And he took the steps that were believed at the time to cure these diseases and prevent their transmission. And as condoms improved, he also started to use them in his sexual adventures. Yes. So we can't paint a 100% rosy picture of Casanova's attitudes and behaviors as a lover, uh, even discounting some of the very scandalous nature of the particular women he had relationships with. Um, although he writes a lot about really focusing on genuinely loving somebody, on, on making women feel loved and wanted and beautiful, and on being an attentive, considerate, and pleasing lover, he was not always in the good guy slash good lover camp. For example... Uh, at one point, he beat a 17-year-old courtesan who had tried to swindle him. Ashamed of what he had done, he actually planned to drown himself in the Thames. But his friends came to his rescue, and he got his revenge by buying a parrot and training it to call her a whore. And then he sold that parrot, presumably as the most odd way to disseminate <laughs> information and insults of all time. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Presumably, whoever bought this parrot did not know that it was going to be calling this woman a, a whore at odd intervals. But in his autobiography, Casanova's sexual exploits take up about a third of the book. And that's more than a 100 women in total, along with also a few men. You could read this as only a third of this autobiography about this man who's known for being a sort of sex god is about sex. Or you could read it as an entire third of this autobiography of a person's whole life is about sex, depending on your point of view. Most of the time in this autobiography, he does try to conceal the identities of his partners, sort of saying he didn't really have the right to publish their personal business. Big exception to this is any time he was having an affair with an actress. <laughs> Actresses were fair game in, in Casanova's mind of... of who he could gossip about openly in his autobiography. It didn't really help the uh, promiscuous Paul that fell over that profession, I'm sure. No. Hey, before we keep talking about this uh, fascinating tale of romance and intrigue, do you want to take a moment? So all of this sex talk that we just talked about before the break seems kind of at odds with Casanova's intent to join the church, which he clearly did intend to do. Um, especially considering that if he became a priest, he would be expected to take a vow of chastity. He was pretty open about the fact that he did indeed intend to take that vow of chastity, but he also was pretty upfront about the fact that he intended to break it. I will say the words, but I will not live by them. It was yep. kind of his plan. Uh, after the death of his grandmother, he was actually sent to seminary, and he spent his last nights before leaving quite amorously, basically thinking, I'm not sure when the next time I'll get to break my vow of celibacy will happen, so I'm going to do it now as often <laughs> as I can. Right. 
He became an abbot, and later, while living in Rome as a young man, he became secretary to a cardinal. At some point after he arrived in Rome, he was presented to Pope Benedict XIV. And allegedly, his reputation had preceded him. Pope Benedict had heard of him and of his exploits, and they kind of got along. The church was in a little bit of a different place then than it is now. Yeah. And Casanova wound up leaving Rome and the church uh, the following winter after a woman that he'd been having an affair with became pregnant. It was a pretty big scandal. There was some sort of, you know, not, maybe not not to the point maybe of tacit approval. But tolerance. But there was some looking the other yeah. way. But, you know, when this woman became pregnant, definitely by Casanova, that was a big deal. At various points after leaving the church, Casanova also talked about taking the vow of celibacy and returning uh, to the life of priesthood. Usually this was right after some kind of heartbreak or having lost a bunch of money gambling or like some other thing that made him unhappy. He always changed his mind. Uh, and then we will talk about his his magic life, his time dabbling in magic and the occult, which happened after he left the church. So in 1746, Casanova was living in Venice, and he was trying to make a living as a violinist. He really was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Yeah. Uh, and he worked in theater at various points in his life. Uh, he shared a gondola with Senator Matteo Giovanni Bragadin, and the senator collapsed with what appeared to be a stroke. Casanova believed the doctors were actually taking the wrong course of action, so he took the senator's treatment uh, into his own hands. And fortunately, the senator did recover, and he took Casanova under his protection. Yeah, if the senator had not recovered, Casanova would have been in deep, deep, deep trouble. Yeah, that's uh, a pretty brazen step to take. It was extremely brazen. And uh, once he did recover, though... Uh, he sort of took Casanova under his wing. Casanova convinced Bragadine and his cohorts, who followed a system of Jewish mysticism called Kabbalah, that he was a mystic with quite a bit of power. He spent his time with them tinkering with Kabbalah and the occult, and he wound up living with Bragadine, who gave him a pretty generous allowance. So he was living it up as a mystic. It's kind of uh, like when you hear in modern times of people being convinced that someone is a guru and yeah, and kind of becoming their patron. He did end up leaving Bragadine's circle in 1748 when he realized the Venetian Inquisition had its eye on him. And while this relationship with the senator seemed to have started out as something of a fraud, Casanova gradually really did genuinely grow fond of the man. Yeah, they became actual friends, but this was not at all the case when it came to a French arrest aristocrat named Madame Durfay. He built her out of lots of money by claiming to have magical powers that were going to help her be reborn as a man. He, uh, in addition to, you know, getting money from her for his living expenses, he, he got money from her to pay for all of these things that he would need to do this magic ritual to ensure her rebor- her rebirth into a male baby's body. This really went on for seven years until she finally, she didn't entirely wise up. She wised up to Casanova not being able to do it. She held on to this idea that she was going to be reborn into a baby who was a boy. Um, but she she cut off contact with Casanova after it finally, finally became clear to her that he was not going to be the one to do it. I have so many questions. It, it's it's. Quite a story. 
<laughs> yeah, like what? Uh, yeah, I have many questions. I'll, I'll read it. I'll do more research. Uh, but somehow that multi-year swindle did not land Casanova in jail. However, other things did. The first time he went to prison was when he was 18, while he was in seminary. The reasons are actually a little unclear, but while in prison, he had an affair with the wife of another inmate, and that is actually how he contracted his first STD. Yep. In 1753, as we've sort of referenced before, he drew the eye of the Venetian Inquisition. This might have been because he had been paying way too much attention to the Inquisitor's mistress. So he wound up being imprisoned in the upper floors of the Doge's palace. And this was a a prison that was named the Leds after its lead roof. From there, Casanova actually made a daring escape. He shaped a bar that he had found in a pile of garbage into a tool. And then he dug through the floor. And a patron got him moved to a new cell on the eve of his escape, though. So he ended up having to start from scratch all over again. Yeah. It was like Shawshank. That's exactly what I was thinking. Except if a rich guy got you moved to a nicer cell. At that point, when he had to start completely over, he formed an alliance with a monk who was confined to the cell upstairs from his. So Casanova managed to smuggle his tool to the monk who used it to dig a tunnel through the floor down into Casanova's room. On November 1st, 1756, Casanova climbed up through the hole and the two of them made their way out through a window that the monk's cell happened to have out onto the roof of the palace. And from there, they actually went back into the palace through a skylight. And they hid in a ballroom, and then eventually convinced a watchman that they were couriers who had been accidentally locked inside overnight. And so they ended up walking right out the front door. As you may imagine, two things happened here. One is that he had to leave Venice, (laughs) because he had just escaped from prison. The other is he was quite famous from having made this daring escape from a prison that was widely regarded to be impenetrable. Like you were not supposed to be able to break out of the leads. He, uh, he did it though and and made quite a name for himself in doing so. He would not be in Venice again for almost 18 years. And before we talk about some of the extensive travel that he did in his life, let's have another moment for a word from a sponsor. And now we'll get back to the very exciting life of Giacomo Casanova. So, after Casanova broke out of the leads, he went to Paris. And Paris was just one of the places he either visited or lived in during his life. He traveled about 40,000 miles during his lifetime, which is an extremely long way to go when you consider that most of it was in carriages over uncertain roads. Yeah. Um, he visited Paris, London, Geneva, Barcelona, Rome, Prague, Constantinople, Amsterdam, Dresden, St. Petersburg, Warsaw, basically every big name city that was existing in that overall zone of the world at that time. And all over, he hobnobbed with the rich and the royal. And some of these places he had to flee after loving the wrong woman or breaking the wrong law or when he simply ran out of money. He was quite good at making money or enticing people to give him money, but he was even better at spending it, apparently, and uh, he would also lose it and gamble it away. He had a gambling problem. He lost a lot of money. He was a man of many appetites. <laughs> yes, that is a great way to describe him. In Paris, he created the National Lottery and became its director and salon keeper. In Lyon, he was inducted into the Freemasons. In Poland, he had to face a jealous boyfriend in a duel. 
Casanova got shot in the hand, and he wound up shooting his opponent in the stomach. While he was in Geneva, he met Voltaire. And in Prague, he met Mozart's librettist and allegedly collaborated on the libretto for the opera Don Giovanni. And in St. Petersburg, he met the famous Catherine the Great. Met a lot of super rich and famous and important people. He did like a tour of history. Kind of, yeah. As it was unfolding. So when he was almost 60 years old, Casanova finally had to leave Venice for good. Uh, He had made it back there at various other points, but this was sort of the last straw. He had lampooned some extremely prominent people in a satire that he wrote, and it was time to go. He became a librarian for a bohemian count, Joseph Wallstein, who lived in uh, Duxov, about 60 miles north of Prague. And he still traveled from time to time, but not nearly so far. It was a comfortable life, but pretty miserable. Uh, Casanova's uh, you know, prowess and and love life had been on the wane for a really long time. This was also pretty much out in the middle of nowhere compared to Vienna and Prague and uh, all these other places that he had been living. Um, you don't really hear a lot about Casanova the librarian. No, <laughs> but this is where he wrote most of his more than 40 books, including his autobiography. This one he wrote under the name Chevalier de Seingalt, which is a pseudonym that he'd coined earlier in his life. He started writing the autobiography in 1789 at the suggestion of a doctor, because at that point he was so lonely and so depressed that he was considering suicide. And the autobiography is written in French, and it abruptly stops mid-sentence in 1774. It's unclear whether he just lost interest. Uh, he was almost 50 years old at that point in the narrative, and his prolific sex life was, you know, pretty much waning. His adventures were not so exciting to write about. Or whether he did, in fact, write more, but that those pages have somehow become lost. Yeah, there's a theory that the surviving manuscript was a recopying of an earlier draft, and that the earlier draft has been destroyed, and that he just stopped for some reason at that point in recopying. He wound up dying alone and poor on June 4th, 1798, at the age of 73, after he contracted a urinary tract infection. And that combined with having prostatitis and the after effects of many STDs to end his life. He was buried in the graveyard of a church uh, there, though he was later exhumed and moved, question mark, we do not know where. Yeah, he was... He had really made a name for himself during his lifetime, but he was kind of fading into obscurity when he died. He was not important enough for people to make note of where where his body was moved to at that point. Um, So we've mentioned this autobiography several times. When Casanova died, he bequeathed his autobiography to his nephew, and his nephew sold it to a German publisher, Friedrich Arnold Brockhaus, 22 years later. A version of the autobiography with most of the most dirty parts cut out came out in 1821 and was immediately banned. The Brockhaus family kept it for the next 140 years. The first complete unedited version of it came out in French in 1960, and an English version came out in 1966. So it took a very long time to get published in its unedited state. All of the unexpurgated thing. <laughs> yeah. There was also some drama in in uh 
I can't remember if it was World War One or World War Two when the offices of the publisher were, were hit by a bomb and everyone was quite concerned about where was the Casanova manuscript. In 2010, it was bought on behalf of the government of France for $9.6 million. Pages of it went on display to the public for the first time in 2011. And in something that I don't, no one really knows if this was on purpose or just a clever happenstance, the paper that it was written on has a watermark of two hearts touching. I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> part of me thinks it's so sweet. And part of me is like, it's probably just a blob. Um, <laughs> uh, it, this paints not only a picture of Casanova, but also of what life was like in Venice and other parts of Europe in that part of history. So he really did create kind of a really important document in that regard. Historians and researchers have painstakingly gone through it. They've fact-checked it. They've cross-referenced it. And the overall verdict seems to be that there are errors and contradictions, particularly related to places and dates, and that there are also some embellishments and untruths. But many of these are what's to be expected when a person is writing their entire life story from memory, which we've come up against before when I've talked about in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But, you know, facts get a little wiggly sometimes in memory. Uh, and, you know, he was doing it with the help of a few letters and mementos, but it was mostly just plucked from his memory. And on the whole, it gives a very real account of the man and of Europe at the time and what life was like living throughout Europe. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about this actually, you know... Regardless of how, how you feel about the extreme quantity of, of explicitly sexual content in it, that there's a whole lot more in the book besides that that is of a lot of historical and literary value, which is one reason why now this manuscript lives in the National Library in Paris. And that is the life of Giacomo Casanova. Um, I rewatched this weekend. I had watched it before, but I rewatched the BBC slash Masterpiece Theater uh, miniseries with David Tennant uh-huh. uh, as the young Giacomo Casanova. Um, and as I was watching it, I was like, there are parts of this that this gets really right. And it kind of gets the overall flavor of it really pretty right. Uh, some of it. It's completely not right, but it's okay. It's- well, there's often in many adaptations, one, I mean, just to make a, a piece of film or television that is viewable, yeah. that is not labeled as pornography, you have to edit an awful lot out to begin with. It would be quite easy to make an adaptation of Casanova's autobiography that was definitely like pornographic. Yeah. That would not be a stretch at all. But then, too, I think people just want to cling to that idea of a sort of romantic element to it that, no, he was, you know, a ladies man and he did get around. But it, he was there's a there's a love about the whole thing. You know, yeah. they kind of want to put him together with Henriette. And yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of that seems to be the theme. Of, yeah. And this is the woman who made him settle down. Yeah. which That's not accurate. not a thing. <laughs> That actually, he did talk about settling down with s- several women, but he never settled down with any of them. And and there are a number of Casanova scholars. Number one, there are a number of Casanova scholars, full <laughs> stop. But the number two, there are a lot of them who, you know, remark that he would be kind of chagrined that now he's remembered mostly for his sex life. Because even though that was a big part of his life, there was so, so, so much more. There's, you know, even more other stuff that we didn't talk about in this episode. Um, so 
while he, he did make quite the name for himself as a lover, that was one part of the story. That's really just the soundbite version. That is the soundbite version. Yeah. One third of his autobiography in this podcast. <laughs> do you also have some listener mail? That I do. Huzzah! Uh This is from Katie, and it's going back to our smallpox episode. This is actually a topic that a few people have mentioned, but uh, this this particular email was so... Uh, I'm just going to read it. <laughs> Hi, ladies. I just wanted to send you a message thanking you for helping to keep me sane during my husband's deployment. So thanks to your husband. And to Katie. And to Katie. Military spouses are... Doing a whole other service. Yeah, we we have love for both. Yes. I'm a young wife without much to do, and I eagerly look forward to all your episodes and go back to re-listen to older episodes between new ones. I was just listening to the episode on Edward Jenner and the smallpox vaccine, and I thought I'd send you a message detailing my own experiences with it. Before my husband's company deployed, all of the soldiers had to be vaccinated against militarized smallpox, and caring for my husband's injection site was an extremely complicated task lasting a few weeks. We went through an entire box of rubber gloves, several bottles of bleach, and countless Ziploc baggies. In addition to having to wear gloves while changing the bandage, then bagging up the bandage and filling the baggie with bleach, I also had to bleach the tub after every shower he took and wash his laundry separate from everything else. I wasn't allowed to touch him anywhere near his injection site without gloves, causing plenty of freakouts during our continuous game of slug bug every time we were in the car. (laughs) Luckily... Everything with him went smoothly, but there are plenty of horror stories about soldiers getting vaccinated and having it spread through their whole body if they're not careful. Unfortunately for my husband, this meant no swimming or going in a body of water with anyone else in the vicinity during the hot summer months. Even though this episode aired a while ago, I thought you amazing hosts would enjoy hearing about modern-day struggles with smallpox vaccination. Thank you again for... All the amazing information and the joy you both bring me with every episode. You're truly making my first deployment as a military spouse all the more bearable. Thank you so much, Katie. Yes. Uh, we got several notes about uh, people in the military getting vaccinated for smallpox. Mm-hmm. And th- there were a few people who were like, why are they doing this if there's no more smallpox? And the reason is that because there are stores of smallpox that exists still yeah. uh, and, you know, rumors of, you know, such and such government has a hidden cache of it that nobody knows about. There's the idea that it could be used as a weapon, yeah. uh, which would be devastating if it, you know, made its way through the military personnel who were trying to deal with that. So yeah. uh, that is why uh, many military personnel are vaccinated for smallpox. When I read this letter, I was like, really? You have to do all that? And I went and looked online and basically, yes. That sounds so... <laughs> crazy to me and it makes me feel like the most um lacking housekeeper on the planet mm-hmm. i'm like bleach the tub i don't do that very often but if i had to do it every time one of us bathed yeah holy well, smokes and we did talk in the episode about how one of the the issues with smallpox uh vaccines was that it could be spread to other people yeah um which is why they have to take all those precautions because the objective there is to vaccinate only the people who need to get the vaccine and and not everyone else around them. But then everyone else around them also has to take precautions to make sure uh, that they do not wind up being infected themselves. So thank you again, Katie. Thank you for being a military spouse. Thank you to your husband for his service. I love the letters like this one. I do too. So if you would like to write to us, you can. We're at historypodcast.discovery.com. 
We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mistinhistory. Our Twitter is mistinhistory, and our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. Our Pinterest, which is newly expanded, is at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. And if you would like to learn more about something that Casanova made a little use of in his lifetime, you can come to our website. Put the word condom in the search bar. You will find how condoms work, which I wrote. If you want a different take on that particular subject, you can put in use a condom and you will find another article that I wrote called 10 Completely Wrong Ways to Use a Condom. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.